The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Joanna Stern, and I'm a senior personal technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal. And I'm very excited to be moderating today's program and chat. I'm pleased to be joined by my friend, Tim Higgins. He's the tech and auto reporter here at the Wall Street Journal, and also the author of a new book called Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. PowerPlay explores the Tesla phenomenon and traces the history of really the hellish first 15 years from attacks by rivals, pressure from investors, and surprises by whistleblowers to the most bold and effective creation, the widely available and most affordable electrical, electric vehicle. It's a gripping read, and I cannot wait to talk all about it. But to start this off, we've got the man himself, Tim Higgins. I was going to say Elon Musk to throw everyone off, but I'm pretty sure everyone's seeing now Tim Higgins. Um, and Tim, I believe you've selected a passage here to read and to get us started. Yes, thank you. Thank you for uh, joining me today. And here's the book. This is the U.S. cover. And uh, I think we saw at the beginning the U.K. cover. And I recommend that you collect all the covers because they're all lots of fun. This this comes from the, the, uh, the beginning of the book. And it just kind of sets the table for, I think, this conversation today. So great are the barriers to entering the car business that the last major new U.S. car maker to emerge that is still around today was Chrysler. That was in 1925. Or as Elon Musk likes to remind people in playing up the outrageous long shot he's taking, only two U.S. car companies have not gone bankrupt, Ford and Tesla. So you'd pretty much have to be delusional to enter such a competition, which some think Musk is. But he hasn't shrunk from the challenge. Instead, he has willed himself and his company to where the lofty visions of Silicon Valley meet the harsh reality of Detroit. His big idea is that in Tesla, he can make electric cars really work, that they can outperform their gas-guzzling cousins, that they can outstyle them, out-tech them, save customers billions of dollars a year on gasoline, and in doing so, save the world from itself. But it's a promise that at times obscures the ruthless business ambition and imperative under which Musk and Tesla operate. Many of us might misunderstand or underestimate Tesla's endgame. They might see the car as a toy for the green conscious family down the block with money to burn, or for the status-inclined hedge funder with the progressive air, or else it's the new Ferrari for the walking midlife crisis who just parked next to you at the train station. But these niche existences, no, they are decidedly not what Tesla is about. And that is why the fate of the company rides on the Model 3. 
the electric car for the masses. As one Wall Street banker lamented years ago, either they become a niche manufacturer like Porsche or Maserati and make 50,000 high-end cars annually, or they crack the code on a $30,000 car that would put them on the inflection point of a large industrial automaker. That inflection point is the Model 3. Wow. So there are 399 more pages, I think, of where that came from. And we're going to be discussing... It just goes goes from there. Uh, we'll be discussing a lot of that in the next hour. Um, and to everyone in the audience, we want your questions too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube. It's either on this side or on that side. I'm not sure uh, which side, but put them in there. We'll keep an eye on them and I will try to work it into the conversation. So with that, Tim, I've got a couple of first, let's, let's first play. I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned you have two covers. I'm wondering if you're going to be updating that book cover with the rave review from Elon Musk, which is false and boring. False and boring. Well, some people say that this is a great endorsement. Uh, I want to address the false part um, in depth here. And I think you probably have questions on that. So let's start off with the boring part. And this is a, almost a classic kind of criticism that Musk lobbies against uh, people who are asking or exploring tough questions about the company. The most infamous time was in 2018 when Wall Street analysts on a public call were pushing Musk for details about the company's financing. The company was in trouble at that point. In fact, so much trouble that you, you'll read in the, in the book that they were getting close to bankruptcy. And Musk's response where the questions were uh, boring and bonehead, and he turned that call into a, really a conversation about the future. When Musk wants to talk about his book of Tesla, it is about the future. It is about autonomous vehicles, battery development, sales that grow and grow. When you read this book, it might be boring to him because it gets into the nuts and bolts of how this company went from a rather improbable idea in 2003 to what it is today, exploring the warts and all. It gets into the tough decisions they had to make. And oftentimes there was really just choices between bad and bad, and they had to figure it out. And that, to me, is dramatic and exciting and I hope the people that read it will also find it to be uh, exhilarating uh, because there's a lot of questions of how Tesla became what it is today. And that was a, kind of a driving uh, question in my mind as I worked on this book. Yeah, I mean, I will say as a reader, I mean, obviously, I'm probably a little biased here, but it is definitely it's the opposite of boring. As you said, I'm like just it's a page turner for anyone who's followed this story and uh, has wanted a little bit of a. Uh, the the deeply reported business side of it, but also the technological side of it. And I think we're going to talk about both of those aspects in this conversation today. And as a, as a journalist, when I read these books, I'm always sort of struck by, in every line, how did the author of this book report that? And I know you're not going to get into sources with us today, unless you'd like to reveal all your sources, which maybe will make this a very popular chat. But um, you, I'm interested, though, how you put this together. How did you tackle this and put the pieces together in what is, I think it's a 400 page uh, opus, really. Right. Well, it, it begins with a, a kind of a question. Um, Elon Musk has kind of developed the kind of the myth that um, Tesla has survived because of his sheer force of will sleeping on factory, the factory floor to make it happen. And without a doubt, there wouldn't be a Tesla without Elon Musk. But there also wouldn't be a Tesla without the 
army of men and women who have dedicated themselves to this company for the last 18 years. And to me, that was a, a fascinating story. And so that is the, the story I really wanted to understand. And so this book relies on hundreds of interviews, thousands of records uh, to really kind of try to capture the definitive history of how the company has occurred. And, and I think it's a unique book in that uh, there are books that explore Elon Musk, the person a biography. Uh, Ashley Vance has written a wonderful definitive take on that. This is in, not a, a biography of Elon Musk. Elon Musk is clearly a character because you can't write about Tesla without that. But it really is a story about how Tesla changed the world. And it's through many different people's eyes that I think we probably can talk about. But one of the things that I think is really exciting and really might be interesting to people is you can read what was going on in real time in these kind of instances through emails that I've collected and other records. You can see that sometimes when things were happening years ago in the way they are told now, there's some revisionist history. Uh, Elon Musk likes to, you know, is likes to talk often about how unhappy he is with the early, one of the early co-founders, Martin Eberhardt. Well, the emails in my book show that at the time the two had a pretty good relationship, and, and Musk was very complimentary of the work he was doing. Uh, the reality is the history of Tesla is very complicated. There's a lot of gray, and there's there's not oftentimes black or white situations. Yeah, and it's and it's clear, obviously, from reading the book that. Elon Musk didn't participate or didn't, I mean, there, there are moments where you've talked with him and it leans on reporting of, on when you've talked with him. But for most part, this is based on your sourcing, talking to people around him, looking at those, those documents. It, sometimes in journalism, that's like, it's like, oh, how am I going to do this? Because I don't have access to the main source. But then it's also an opportunity. Did you think of it that way as you were approaching the, like, really the writing? Well, I don't say who I talked to, but I'll also say that when I began this book, I made the decision and went into it knowing that uh, I did not accept, expect cooperation from the company. I did not receive cooperation from Tesla. This is clearly not a book that's endorsed by Elon Musk. And I thought that that could actually be a benefit here because it will allow to tell a more uh, nuanced history of the company rather than uh, the official uh, history. And you know, making a car company is not an easy thing. There's a reason why so few uh, startups in the automotive space get this far. I mean, really, Tesla at this point. Now, there's some others that have arisen because of Tesla. But what Tesla was trying to do um, was rather crazy in 2003. Uh, there were so many reasons for why this wasn't going to work out. And to get this far required uh, an incredible hard amount of work, luck, and just sheer force of will. When you started working on this book, which actually, when did you start working on this? How, how many years ago? Well, when I started working on this book in 2018, I thought it was going to be the story of Tesla's uh, collapse. Uh, for right. so many years, people had predicted that Tesla was just uh, a, a heartbeat away from finally meeting its maker. And it really looked pretty grim for Elon and for the company in the summer of 2018. Um, but as time went on, it became clear to me that this was actually another story. This was the story of probably one of the most remarkable corporate turnarounds of this generation. Uh, going from near bankruptcy, uh, bringing out the Model 3 compact car to now being the world's most valuable automaker um, is quite a feat. 
And so tell me a little bit about this. I mean, one of the things that the book does end up being about is really Elon's management style and his ability to lead the company through the ups and downs and thick and thin. If Elon Musk business school was a thing, what do you think would be the number one lesson or at least one of the top lessons? Well, there's a couple of things. It, it's hard for CEOs of other car companies to replicate what Musk does because Musk has the risk appetite that is uh, very unique to him, but also the ability and the control of the company to take those kinds of risks. So there's that going on. But one of the things that also really surprised me as I look into the history of the company was his ability to ferret out talent um, around the world and talent that he could then uh, align with what he wanted to do, um, whether engineering or design or production. Um, he has the ability to attract a lot of really smart people and get them to march in the direction he needs them to march in. And that is perhaps an underappreciated uh, asset that he has. Yeah, that comes through definitely as he sort of goes scouting after he, oh, good, my lights went off in my office. Sometimes you have to wave your hands here in my office. Um, there we go. Um, yeah, that definitely comes through in sort of his talent scouting post, uh, well, when he becomes the CEO and he's trying to figure out the production line and uh, get things running. There's And you mentioned it sort of a little bit of... Um, well, it, there's this reality distortion field and sort of the stretch goals of Elon Musk and sort of continually trying to do the impossible and make the impossible possible, which is certainly a big theme in Silicon Valley. I mean, really, you know, Steve Jobs and other type mentality. It, can, can you ex like really take us into the psyche there and what you find out about uh, how he interacts with others and how he sort of just sort of drives through, and I mean, no pun intended in, in that, I guess. Absolutely, sure. I mean, there, clearly there's an element of naivete and delusion and in, in kind of the way he's approaching some things. He wants a future. He sees a, in his mind, why can't it be X? And if you were to talk to a traditional car company, they, there would be a long list of reasons why. Um, and so he has that kind of ability in his mind to clearly think of a different way of doing things. Uh, that isn't kind of shaped by the way things have occurred. But, you know, we see that a lot here in Silicon Valley. But what, one of the things that separates him is that hard-headedness to, to push through that vision, but also his financial resources. At first, it was he was the largest investor in Tesla. That's how he came into the company. Uh, he was willing to bet his personal fortune on this idea. And then it, beyond that, he was able to sell this idea to other investors. And this becomes a key part of the, the, the story of Tesla. For Tesla, the story for so long is cash. It needs cash. The metal bashing business eats cash like Cheerios. They just need to go through it every day. And until they could become self-sustaining, they were going to need a lot of it. Now, they never never seemed to realize how much they were going to need at every stage of the company. It was always, they were always under predicting that need, but Elon was able to sell continually the idea of what the company was and why investors should get on board. And the, one of the ways he did that was something that the auto industry was is not familiar with and perhaps a little even uncomfortable with when he started doing that. And that is the idea of coming out with the vehicle, uh, a concept of the vehicle, prototype of the vehicle, letting people drive it, test drive it, and then taking deposits for it and using some of that money then to help the company then bring that vehicle out. 
usually when you see a car company bring out a new car, uh, maybe it's a year in advance. Uh, they don't want to do it too soon uh, if they're not ready to do it because they don't want to cannibalize the current product. But they also, you know, they, they don't want people to lose track of it either. So this was a big, big change uh, in the auto, auto space. Uh, you know, we're still talking about vehicles that he's promised uh, for customers years ago, uh, the next generation of the Roadster, for example, the semi-truck. Uh, this is where critics kind of rise up and say, are these things real? Um, and, you know, early on, there was a question of, was it going to be real? Was the original Roadster going to be real? Uh, but it was. You, it, it, he arrived with that. And the Model S was a really a key a breakthrough period um, because the Model S was his vision for what the company could actually be. Um, this was a luxury sedan that he wanted to be uh, the best car out there that just happened to be electric. And in doing that, he really needed to put together a pretty good team. And so you saw that in 2009, he's really kind of building out that team. One of the key differences, though, as the CEO of the company versus just the chairman as he had been, uh, earlier was that he controlled the purse springs at that point. And so early on, he was frustrated with managers and executives as they tried to develop the Model S because it was too Detroit in thinking. And part of that is because they were given a budget and they were trying to come in with the budget because you do not rise up the ranks in a Detroit automaker if you are given the task of making a car that's going to sell for $50,000 and then turns out to be $120,000 like the Model S typically was at that point. And so he, with that freedom, the car just became better and better as it also became more and more expensive. So th those are some of the things that you see early on as he's creating the culture of the company of let's be the best we can and not think about how it's done before and I'll find the cash to pay for it down the road. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit, and we'll, we'll do it in a little bit, about the sort of the differences inherently in the culture of Detroit and Silicon Valley and how much of Tesla is embodied in that. But uh, one of the things where we're talking about financials and the, the fundraising, it just seems to me as reading, and I've read a number of these books about startups in the past, where you, you feel like Tesla's on the brink of really just disappearing because they, they can't, keep, can't keep it going more than other startups. I mean, why is that? Well, it gets back to this, the, the fact that making a car company is really expensive. It's, it, it takes a lot of cash, right? And so traditionally... It's not uh, just like making something to type 140 characters in. Right. This isn't developing software for selling ads or uh, you know, trying to develop the next cool uh, app. Um, this is capital intensive. You need factories. You need sales, uh, a fleet of people to sell it. Uh, you need the R&D to go into it. There's just so many different variables here. And that is actually one of the reasons why you haven't seen a lot of startups up until this point was because the, the Silicon Valley uh, ecosystem was not interested in a company that was going to eat cash and maybe not see a return for a decade. Typically, in the auto space, it, it, it's not, it was not unusual at a certain point for a vehicle to take seven years to develop. And if you're sitting in Palo Alto or on Sand Hill Road, uh, you're looking for something that's going to have a, a bigger pop uh, much quicker. And the more money you start raising for that car company, the more you're going to be diluted. So the, the, the fundamentals of getting the car business didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of investors. And that's why Elon Musk was so important as the first big investor, he, he seemed to not care about this kind of thing. He was, he was tied up in the idea of bringing electric cars out. 
he was a little bit of a car guy. He had a luxury car. Uh, he had been excited about what electric vehicles could be in the past. And at that point in time, you couldn't get a cool, sexy sports car that was electric. And that was one of the, the big aha moments for Tesla early on was why not marry up the idea of a Porsche with uh, the, an electric vehicle? And, and that could be this potential uh, new kind of market. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting also just as you talk about Detroit and Silicon Valley and car industry and the tech industry, and it sort of mirrors that. Let's talk a little bit about you for a second. So you started out reporting in Detroit on the car industry. You then move out to San Francisco a couple of years ago, and you decide you're going to cover the auto and tech industry, and you start covering Tesla. Um, and the impact of tech on this company and Silicon Valley on this company is a core theme to this book. To you, what has made Tesla more of a tech company? Is it an operating? Is it just short, sheer vision than a car company or an auto company? It, it, has, it has an ethos of the Silicon Valley uh, culture of, of, of trying to move quickly, uh, maybe not always having the right answers, breaking things and, and uh, making learning from those mistakes. That's kind of classic out here. Um, but the, the ability to get software in the car has been very important um, as well. The, the uh, willingness to think differently outside of that box is very key. And part of that is being a tech company. Part of that is just not being beholden to the way things have been done. If you are at a major U.S. automaker, uh, you probably make most of your money from selling pickup trucks or SUVs that run on gasoline. And so it's very hard if, if you're an executive there who wants to do electric cars to have much of a career at that point in time, because the, the, the moneymaker was SUVs. It really takes leadership at the top to say, we're going to really do something different and put billions and billions of dollars into it. And you're seeing that now from Mary Barra at GM and others at other automakers, but that wasn't the case almost 20 years ago. Uh, General Motors was working on an electric vehicle called the EV1. And it was, it, it was beloved by certain customers in California, but it was not a, a huge uh, success in, in the corporate halls of Detroit. And, you know, this is one of the benefits that Tesla had. It didn't have any history. It could start anew and it could take a chance. And one of those chances early on was the belief that lithium ion batteries were going to be the solution. And these are the batteries that you would find in camcorders or laptops Essentially, off the shelf was the idea that this was a proven technology. Why not just tie a bunch of these these batteries that are about finger size, fat finger size, bunch of them together to create a big battery pack to power the car? Now, you know, if you're a traditional auto person, you don't like this idea because these batteries, uh, you know, are they going to start on fire and crash? Why are they safe? And the industry at that point had been always looking for the next perfect thing, and that's expensive and time consuming. And, you know, there's always reasons to keep looking, whereas Tesla was like, we're going to bet on this and see if it works. And that that was a big aha. I want to go back to Musk even and we'll I, I don't want to make this whole conversation about Musk, but obviously that is part of the sort of gripping part of this book. Um, there are many examples in the book, and I want to read a couple of them, or at least one of them, where I get to say the F word many times, so that's really why I picked it. Um, of you know, there's examples of Elon being just a ruthless leader. You know, he hires a private engineer to look into employees. Uh, he yells at a room of engineers when they're building the Model Three and tells each of them to go around them and says, "Who the fuck are you? What the fuck are you doing to fix my goddamn line?" 
And uh, there are lots of uh, examples of this in this book. You should do a control F for fuck in your ma manuscript and see where how many times fuck is appears. Can I just keep saying that on this? I don't. Uh, the well, Commonwealth is never club is never having me back. There might be some children on here, but it's time for them to learn, I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I like to so say he has a vocabulary of a salty pirate. <laughs> yes, this, that's that's probably a nicer way to have put it rather than say the f word on this live stream so many times. Um, but you know, I, like it, it made me think of he has these outbursts, and like, is there any rhyme or reason to these as you have now covered and and you detail them in a couple of different places? Uh, do you have a sense of when they happen to this to this man and to this leader? Yeah, you know, it's it's the kind of the paradox. That on one hand, he can be incredibly charming. Um, I hear stories about, uh, you know, the way that he could just engage and zero in on a person and feel connected, um, funny, uh, talking about crazy, exciting ideas, whether it's the threat of AI or brain computers or his, you know, his favorite topic, uh, going to Mars. And so on one hand, it's, here's this guy who's doing interesting things and super personable sometimes, but on the other hand, he, a, a switch can be flipped and he can be withdrawn and he's prone to nano managing um really can get into the details and you know oftentimes you you would see him losing his temper on some certain things the typos and presentations for example there was one presentation he was giving that, that some of his people were giving in detroit and he just he just wanted to fire to fire everybody at that point he was so frustrated with them um or because there know, was a typo in the presentation or just didn't like the presentation there was a typo he wanted the person fired uh at least according to this account and you know other times it's you know he would be upset about if somebody doesn't understand the numbers or not prepared or inability to think more creatively in engineering problems or feeling like they're not uh, at the level that he needs. And so we, we, you see kind of a change. Though. So he's always been short, uh, you know, maybe short tempered, if you will. But early on, um, the kind of the, I, the feeling among people that were working there was the people that got fired, maybe they deserved it. Now, that's not, you know, the case, maybe not. You know, I'm not judging if a person got fired, they deserved it or not. But there was a feeling like if you were going to survive a Tesla, you had to be the best of the best the special forces, you had to be super tough. And, you know, if Elon was executing you, it was because you deserved it. Now, as time went on, however, his outbursts perhaps became a little less harder to gauge and understand when they were going to occur. And, and it felt to some in 2017, 2018, as the company is really becoming unglued, that he's just screaming into the darkness because he doesn't know who to blame or he doesn't know, you know, because he's lost track of, of these kinds of things. And so that's, that's where that's, there's a, there's a change there of people who, who felt like his anger and rage were really at their, their peak there where the company was nearly done under. And, you know, it, it's understandable. The company was close to the brink and it was a very stressful period. And you, you hear his comments now and he talks about how uh, that was a very dark period for him. Yeah, it, I I think that like when my toddler has similar outbursts, it's because he doesn't eat or sleep. Um, and well, he, there's also a lot of talk in your book about sleep. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't sleep a lot. He's, he's uh, prone to a little sleep. And in the 2016-2017 period, uh, he was 
dating Amber Heard, the actress, and people around him talk about how he was uh, traveling uh, uh, around the world to try to spend a little bit of time with her and was complaining in meetings about just being exhausted from that travel. The time zone shift that was going on there was was eating away at him. So 2016 is kind of a, is a real pivotal year for the company. There's a lot of trouble going on uh, there that he is struggling. The, one of his other companies, Solar City, is in, in bad need of cash. Uh, the company is having problems with its autonomous vehicle technology, or its driver assist technology at that point. And they're trying to prepare to bring out the Model 3. And um, there's a lot of plates spinning at that point. Yeah, it's, you brought up Amber Heard, so I want to ask you about this because I sometimes like to read People Magazine. I'll admit that here for our viewers, um, and I'm always a little bit interested in sort of the gossip and the personality behind uh, or the personal life around many of these tech and uh, business moguls. And you have some of that in the book, not so much. And I wanted to to know, you know so what did you decide to include there about? Elon Musk's love life uh, and his many marriages. Did you sort of think about that as you were writing? Did it just sort of uh, weave its way through? Absolutely. It was definitely one of those things when I started it, I had kind of a guiding light. And this was, to me, a book about Tesla, uh, about the company and its history and how it did what it was going to do. And so I, I really tried to approach it as uh, I would touch on his family in, in terms when it came, it was important to the company. And oftentimes his personal life is intertwined with his companies in a way that's hard to separate. Uh, there's anecdotes of when he was dating um, or when he was with one of his wives, uh, her hair color, the blonder it was, the happier he was, was the, was the joke at Tesla. And so they were always watching for that. Um, they knew, executives knew that if he was having personal problems, that oftentimes that would bleed in to the office. This is a person that's working essentially uh, around the clock oftentimes. And, um, you know, it was hard for him at times to separate that. And so when he's breaking up with Amber Heard, or when they are breaking up, excuse me, in 20, late 2017, mid-2017, it's clearly something he's having a hard time hiding with. He's publicly dealing with it in a way that's unnerving to some. And, uh, you know, this, this is the kind of one of the things about Tesla that you don't see at other car companies, this personality having this, it, it provides some benefits and provides some risks. So the benefits is that Elon has a connection with his fans and his customers. But then the, the downside is that, uh, his whims can send things uh, going sideways. Yeah, no, you definitely get that sense as you're reading. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are others out there that read and also say like, oh, I'm not interested in that. But with, when you put it in the perspective of, oh, it has impact on the business, then it's maybe okay for us to be interested in it too. So that gives us a nice excuse. So I appreciate that. Um, Want to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the tech, because I'm always fascinated about the parts of the car when I'm in a Tesla, the, the the parts of the car that just seem totally revolutionary. And I think for many people, they think it's, you know, around the battery, but you know, given your expertise, I, I want to like ask you, if you had to pick one part of the Tesla and what kind of changed the game, what tech component would it be? Well, one of the big breakthroughs uh, that Tesla had early on was the battery pack management. And that seems really boring, but they, those battery cells, just they look fine one in 
maybe a million or so can have defaults, uh, defects, and can just uh, potentially start on fire. And so they had to figure out a way to how to, to keep all of those batteries from becoming basically a bomb on wheel. And so they, this was potentially an existential moment for the company. And so one of the things they figured out was how to create a battery pack to manage the heat of that battery pack in a way that if one of the cells started to go into what's called thermal runaway, it wouldn't send the entire car into thermal runaway. So this was a key thing. Um, one of the other pieces of technology that you see that has put Tesla so far ahead uh, in lots of ways is their ability with software and their ability to update the car remotely with the cellular uh, signals or Wi-Fi signals, kind of like if you think about your phone, your cell phone. Apple can send a software update and it can have, uh, it can do new things for you. Well, in some ways, it's very, very much the same for Tesla. And that really became key early on when they launched the Model S. Uh, they started to have some very public uh, vehicle incidences where a Model S would run over some debris on the roadway, it would puncture the battery pack and a fire would occur. Now you can imagine the, the PR crisis that this upstart company was having. People were already kind of concerned about the use of lithium ion batteries and here are these fires. Well, the company engineers started looking at it and they, they realized that with that software update, uh, if they just slightly raise the car a little bit, the suspension of it, that the probability of that roadway debris puncturing the pack dropped dramatically. And so they were able to do that very simply. And then that bought them some time to then roll out uh, a physical um, alteration to the vehicle. They put in some additional shielding um, beneath the car to protect the battery pack. And so really, at that point in time, they really dodged what could have potentially been um, a, a company-ending kind of incidences if, if they, they didn't have this kind of technology. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, you know, just talking a little bit more about the technology and the software and the integration of the hardware, I want to turn to page 96. I just feel like a, a spiritual leader when I do something like this. Um, all right, so page 96, and you say, instead of a radio with its usual knobs, there was a touchscreen, the same functionality as the Apple iPhone that had been released less than two years earlier. Tesla's screen was unveiled a year before Apple would release its iPad. So obviously insiders also, when they read this, someone like me, I sort of know, okay, so Tesla was working on this basically hand in hand as Apple was working on the iPhone because two years, you like you put the timeline. And so I, you know, it just strikes me too, like was, was Musk's and this company's proximity to Silicon Valley something that made them ahead on that kind of feature? Yeah, no, absolutely. Their ability to, to kind of jump into pick pieces of the tech world aesthetic and put it in the vehicles was key. Remember what cars, the cockpits of cars used to be like, a lot of buttons. Uh, the, EV, the EV1, which was General Motors electric vehicle, the, uh, you know, prior to the, the Tesla coming around, was full of like buttons in the middle. It was like a, a scientific calculator, if you will. And that was the idea of the future. And, and what Tesla wanted to do was have a giant screen in the middle there that was touchscreen. This was, there was a lot of reasons why traditional car companies didn't like this idea. They thought it was a distraction. They thought it was expensive. It was expensive. It was hard to source. Uh, but, you, you know, if you're a tech person, you thought this was naturally the way uh, that user interfaces were going to go. And they had the ability to do the design. Uh, and they had the ability to, to figure out how to make it work. And this is, it becomes what I like to think of as California uh, auto luxury. And you've, you've seen this kind of 
been adopted now that it's becoming uh, a race to have the biggest screen in a car um, is out there. We've seen cars now with screens that are as large as the dashboard. Yeah, the was it the Mercedes E? The, the I don't know. You're the car guy. I'm, I'm just yeah. a tech Mercedes has definitely adopted the idea that big screens are the future. Yeah, it seems like every car now, as you're saying, is trying to up each other with the, the screen size there. Um, you know, actually, we're, we're talking a little bit about Apple, so I want to pick your brain here on Apple. And, and if appropriately, you cover Apple now for the Wall Street Journal, and uh, we often talk about that because I, I also cover a lot of Apple products or review a lot of Apple products. And, um, you know, there's there's quite a bit of talk and there's been a bit of talk on media and Twitter about the relationship, non-relationship between Tim Cook and Elon Musk. Uh, there's a great chapter you have also in here on how Musk wanted stores to be more like Apple. Um, what, what's going on with these two companies? I mean, really, I just want to hear your perspective on how these two companies relate to each other. And uh, where, where, you know, is, is it a threat? Where, where, where have you thought about this in, in the book and, and even in your reporting here at the journal? Well, absolutely. Um, it, as you talk about being in Silicon Valley, a lot of these engineers at these big tech companies are, tend to be car guys or car people because they make a lot of money and what is one of the things they tend to buy are fancy cars. So the, in, in some ways, Tesla's success has been early on because of the California market and in particular in the Valley, those early adopters. So the idea of Tesla was was percolating as it was becoming more and more successful. Other tech companies started to take note, uh, in particular, this idea of autonomous vehicle technology. Um, you know, was this future really possible? And we've seen billions of dollars be invested uh, in the Valley in racing after electric vehicles, uh, autonomous vehicles. with the idea that if Tesla could do this, they have kind of cut this path, maybe others can do it. And then you naturally get to a company like Apple with a lot of resources and clearly some ambitions in the car space. And there's a little bit of a rivalry there. Uh, Apple was uh, trying to poach some of uh, Tesla's people early on as it was working on a car project. And Elon has been uh, dismissive of that. But there's also... Uh, in some ways, it's validating of what Tesla is doing. If Apple is seen as liking or trying to be inspired by Tesla, that, that's going to play well um, for Elon as he has tried to sell this idea that Tesla uh, could be as valuable or more valuable than Apple. And, and he's talked about that on, a, on many occasions. So there's definitely some intertwined things uh, going on there. The, the controversy that we've seen um, over this book, I think you're, you're asking about as well, is that um, there, as detailed in the book, uh, Musk, uh, there's a, a story of a conversation that Musk tells some of his team members about that he says occurred with Tim Cook. And in that telling of the story, uh, Apple is, is feeling Tesla out for the idea of an acquisition. And Tesla and Elon says, well, he wants to be the CEO. And in this telling, Tim Cook says, well, of course, you can continue to be the CEO of Tesla. And, and Musk is, supposedly says, well, no, I want to be the CEO of Apple. And, and Cook very uh, abruptly hangs up the phone with a profanity. And in the book. It's very nice of you, Tim, not to say the profanity, as I have here on this live stream many times. In, in the book, I detail how Tim Cook has said he's never even spoken 
to Elon Musk and, uh, you know, put some skepticism about the veracity of what Elon is saying. Now, what's important, though, here is that the, this is the, the story that Elon is telling uh, his, his people. The message is very clear that, he, that Elon Musk is the CEO. He is in control that they are on their own. There is not going to be a white knight coming in to save the day. They've got to fix their problems. And this comes at a period of time. In 2016, the company, early 2016, the company's in trouble yet again. And the Model X sport utility production is a mess. The company's cash is falling. The stock is falling. Um, in some, it's easy to understand. We're hoping for some kind of white knight, some deep-pocketed savior. That's oftentimes what happens in the history of the company, that there's hope that maybe the company will get bought and saved. There's so many people, that company, the real money they're going to make is in the stock. They don't want to see it fall apart. Uh, but Musk is clearly clearly tele to, to send, sending signals that they're, that's not going to be the path right now. It's also important, this detail. It's one of many kind of details or examples, if you will, uh, throughout the book that show that Musk's ego and bravado are continuing to grow with every public success that Tesla is having. And those things combined are helping to put the company uh, on the road to possible bankruptcy in 2018. Because you remember, in 2016, we've talked, this, it was a pivotal period. And, and he's doing things that are incredibly risky. He's buying a solar company, Solar City. He's making claims about Tesla's autonomous vehicle technology out there that gives some people pause. He is pulling ahead production of the Model 3 in a way that is of concern to some. Mm -hmm. uh, people around him were all on these issues, cautioning and warning him against it. They were concerned about the risks that were being created. Because you have to remember, just bringing out the Model 3 was seen as... Uh, very hard at that time, that they already had super ambitious goals, and this was already super risky. And here was Musk making decisions that were essentially compounding that risk. It was risk on top of risk on top of risk, and it, they, it, was, it was unnerving for some. Now, in the book, we explore how Musk had his reasonings for these things. Uh, in part, when the Model 3 was first revealed, in early 2016, the response from the public was unlike anything the auto industry was familiar with. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people putting money down to get a car that they had never bought, had never or had never driven, had never sat in. Uh, not even, not even really clear when it was going to come out exactly. And this kind of uh, opportunity uh, was eye-opening for the auto industry. What was Tesla on. Here was this kind of signal that maybe mainstream America was ready for an electric car. This wasn't maybe just a plaything for rich people, that uh, everyday people were going to be interested in this. And you know, the question was, could Tesla move quick enough to capitalize on that excitement? Yeah. And I would also encourage everybody, I think it's page 295 in the book, to read very carefully that exchange and how you describe it between Cook and Musk, because it feels like it's kind of spiraled. It's gone viral on the internet, and it's uh, it, you know when you read it, it, there's a lot more context around it. So I encourage everyone to do that. Um, you know, wh one thing, and we have a good question about this, so I'm going to do this as kind of a two point question. And one thing that I've been fascinated in, in the book as well is 
about, and there's a whole chapter about social media and Musk's inability to really kind of put it down. He's basically like all of us, except he's got something like 6 million followers and, you know, he runs a huge publicly traded company. More than 50, 50 million followers. Was it 50 million followers? <laughs> on, oh, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. 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 he's, got, he's got a few, a few more than me. <laughs> you know what? I miss it. I have it written down. 58 million followers. So yes, this is a you know, it's it's not just like us just, you know, posting some tweet and it uh, you know, maybe going somewhere, maybe not going somewhere. Um, and obviously it's led to uh, quite a bit of issues. Um, and we have an audience question who says, you know, what was it like when for people inside of Tesla when Elon tweeted that the company's stock was valued too high? Um, so we'll take that one. And then I've got some other questions around his social media use and, and maybe maybe you, you can... Uh, play social media manager there. Well, well, that's a that's a smart question here because his, his comment, there's there's a common issue that the company was having. So Tesla doesn't necessarily pay as well as other tech companies. They don't have the same kind of benefits. They don't have all the cool free food. Uh, in fact, I remember talking to one uh, one engineer who was lamenting that during the dark periods of, of 2018, 2017 period that they got rid of uh, the free cereal at the, the corporate headquarters, but they still had it at the factory. And so if you got sent to the factory, some people would put it in the intercompany envelope uh, mail system and mail it to their friends so they could have some cereal. But, you know, in Google, it's the, the cafeteria is amazing, right? And so, you know, you are joining Tesla, you are working Tesla, uh, in part because you believe in the mission or you believe that you're going to have the opportunity to do something you can't do at other companies. So, and so that's a motivating factor. But another factor is that stock. And so you're watching it. And as the company would have its ups and downs, you know, in part driven by uh, what the market was doing, in part driven by what Elon was doing, this creates a huge, huge, huge distraction. And you know, it, it's also, you know, there was the, the other infamous tweet where he says that he would consider taking Tesla private. And that led to, uh, I think you said in the book, uh, this didn't create a Twitter storm. It caused a Category 5 hurricane. Or that might have actually been in regards to a different tweet, which was the Thailand sub, sub situation. Um, you know, is there anyone around him that is controlling this thinking about this um you know, just interested in what you what you've heard about the fallout in in the company well, it's part of kind of the settlement with the government after they claimed that uh, he'd misled investors with that go private tweet uh, he's supposed to have material uh, statements uh, vetted or signed off on uh, by the twitter sitter um, but you know there's one of the challenges that is tesla, tesla is that is as the company has become more successful, as Elon has become more successful, uh, there are not the same kind of people around him who can kind of temper some of his uh, worst impulses uh, and kind of direct, try to direct him towards the good that he wants to do. And so you see, you've seen kind of a pickup in some of these uh, kind of spats or dramas um, that leave people inside the company frustrated or confused as to, you know, why, why is the company getting involved in this when they've got so many other real problems to address? And, but also, um, you know, I should say there's, you know, we, we focus on the negative, but then there's also the positive uh, of that access to uh, social media. It is a bullhorn that can drive the stock, that can drive consumer interest, 
that is essentially free marketing in a way that any automaker would just love to have that ability to pull that lever when needed. Uh, you know, the General Motors and other car companies are among the biggest spenders on TV advertising, and, and, and Tesla doesn't do TV advertising. Uh, they, they, it's not, any, not an expense on they have to worry about. They don't need to at this point. And so there is, it's this interesting dynamic that occurred has occurred that, that Elon and Tesla have become so intertwined that it's hard to separate them. So you get the positives of his celebrity, but then you also, there's the risks of that uh, personality are, are clearly always in the background. Right. Like when he hosts Saturday Night Live or something like that. Um, you know, one thing too that, um, and actually we have a good audience question on this too, but I wanted to sort of ask is that you don't focus in this book on SpaceX, which is really Musk's other child. Why did you leave that out? Yeah, I mean SpaceX. It's interesting. You know, the you, you would hear I would hear this kind of this kind of way of thinking about the way they feel like Elon was in those early days. That SpaceX was his true love, his wife, and Tesla was his spicy mistress. That you have to recall early on in SpaceX. You know, it was a rather kind of um, uh, weird idea, if you will. You know, it made sense to people who were into it, but it wasn't. It didn't have the cultural capital that it has today. It hasn't hadn't had the kinds of successes. It was in some ways uh, a sleeping, uh, perhaps soon to be giant. But Tesla uh, was getting lots of attention and was full of all sorts of things. And it, 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 part of that gets to the car culture we have in the U.S. That people like cars. And here was a guy who was trying to put a car on the road that looked pretty cool, had some crazy claims of performance, and the corporate drama was bleeding all over the place. And so that, you know, all of that is to say that what I wanted to do was to write the definitive history of this car company and how it how it did what it did, but then also how it played in the automotive industry and how it contributed to um, a, a kind of a, a change in how we see the future of cars. And yeah, the, the question for the audience is, you touched on a little bit of this here, but you know, why is there a big tech billionaire obsession with space and are Tesla and SpaceX closely connected or kept separate? Well, it, they're separate companies. Uh, Tesla's publicly traded, uh, SpaceX is private. I, in my mind, think of them uh, as being under what I like to think of as Elon Inc. Uh, Elon has some other investments, other companies um, that you know that he spends less time on, but he's essentially dividing his time between SpaceX and Tesla. And really, what gets the most attention is whatever is having the most important thing go on, wherever the big drama is. And so when Model 3 production is struggling, that is where he's, he's kind of engaged at that point. And, you know, that's, that's so it's in some ways, you know, he's operating in kind of one big world. But individually, those companies, executives talk about having to try to manage up to him in a way to appreciate what's going on um, at SpaceX. So they're watching the news to say, is he having bad news at SpaceX? Maybe this isn't a good day to tell him that we're having some problems here. Or, oh, it looks like he might be excited at SpaceX. Let's tell him about our problems today. You know, these sorts of things uh, to try to manage up and manage his mood. Because um, as we've discussed, his mood can be uh, very poor. Right. You don't want to hear like both children are getting apps on their finals on the same day. Well, you know, one thing I don't get into in the book is about his children, other than mention the, the one, oh. one anecdote. <laughs> You're talking that, about actual children. 
Yeah, well, right. Well, his, <laughs> well you bring it up. The one, as his children were getting bigger, uh, he needed more space in his view. And the Model S had space for all of his children at that point, but they were getting big. And so he be, became kind of obsessed with the idea of having an SUV that would be big enough for them in their car seats because he was tired of bumping his head as he put them in their car seats in the SUV. So that's why the Model X has these doors that open up like uh, the bird's wings. So that's how his personal life influences the company in ways. Um, but by all accounts, he, he, sound, he sounds like a very devoted father. He, it's, it's one of those things that he cares deeply about as his children. Uh, but I don't spend much time exploring those actual children. It's the SpaceX and Tesla children that get the attention. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I was referencing. But now I'm happy to know that I should go buy a X because I have two car seats. So thank you for that, Tim. I'm excited to spend that money after this call. Um, you know, and and we've talked a lot about Elon Musk, but this book is full of other characters, and there are some really interesting stories and people you've never heard of, and you just you know I think most people just assume Elon Musk, founder of Tesla. That's that's it. Um, tell tell me a little bit about some of those other characters. I mean, is there one or two characters you would you want people to remember and uh, and and think of when they when they finish this book? Yeah, absolutely. Even the idea of him being the founder is contentious in the, in the founding of this this story. It's not a it's not a black or white beginning for the company. One of the early co-founders, Martin Eberhardt, is uh, interesting uh, how he influences the early culture of the company. Uh, J.B. Straubel, uh, another one of their early players, very key in developing the battery technology and then struggling and fighting over the years to bring down the cost of those batteries. Because if without being able to bring down the cost of the batteries, electric cars can never really become mainstream. A man who is motivated by the idea of bringing green technology to the world, um, less so than being obsessed with cars. Uh, he's more of a battery guy than a car guy. Uh, it gets into uh, Peter Rawlinson, who is a, a key engineer on developing the Model S, making it, taking that idea of what it was going to be from Elon and his designer and J.B. Straubel from the battery production, the battery side, and putting it into an actual car that then showed the world that an electric car could be uh, attainable, uh, that could be something you use in everyday life and also could be really cool. Uh, so those people, we, we also explore how Doug Field, who was a key engineer that came in from Apple, helped make the Model 3 an, an attain, a really attainable car and a f more affordable car than the Model S. So key, key people uh, that uh, get highlighted in this book who really uh, helped develop uh, and, and shape that company. Is there, and this is an audience question and I love it, was there one, what, what's your favorite Tesla story that didn't make it into the book? Was there one? Well, there's lots of stories that didn't make it into the book and that gets to a question we had earlier about the process of writing the book. Um, it, sometimes you hear things that you can't necessarily hear it from multiple people and I wanted to, to make sure that uh, these, there was, this was a book of facts, not a book of, uh, of rumors or, or uh, social media posts or uh, Google searches. So uh, being able to nail down these things was really important. And, and so uh, the, the, the stories and the anecdotes in this book are the ones that are, are strong. And the ones that I have in my back pocket are the ones that uh, maybe I tell uh, people over uh, beer at the Tornado in San Francisco. Got it. So maybe you just are waiting more to confirm some of those other stories and we'll look for it in the sequel is what I'm hearing. 
this story of Tesla, I think, will go on for many years. So there's probably many more books. Many more books. Okay. Well, right that now. That other people can write. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, right now, you just finished one big book. Um, I want to go to two more audience questions, and then I think we're going to wrap up here. Um, one of them, well, let's end on this one on, on the future. So let me ask this first one here, which is more about electric vehicles. Um, and we'll pick your brain a little bit on uh, the environmental impact on them. It says, electric vehicles themselves emit emit no or low carbon. They need to be charged using power that's coming from a power plant. In net, are Tesla's really creating a lower carbon footprint? Yeah, We don't have 60 always, minutes to answer this question. Right. We, you know, that's always been the debate around electric cars. And that is part of the, the reason why Elon justified the purchase of the solar company. He sees it as a, a kind of an ecosystem. You charge, you, you collect sun on your roof, you store that uh, power in your garage through a battery and then you charge the vehicle overnight. So that's the vision he's putting forward uh, that would address some of those concerns. And this other question, which I, you know, it's going to kind of get into my last question for you, but I, let, let's hear it. And you got into it a little bit, even just saying that this story has many, many chapters. But the question is, what does the next five years look like for Tesla? Can we even predict five years in the future for them? Well, it's clear that uh, Elon Musk's vision for the future of cars has won the day. When you see companies like General Motors and Volkswagen and Mercedes uh, racing to spend billions and billions of dollars to have their own fleets of electric vehicles, as you see governments in Europe and in China uh, push uh, regulations that are really going to shape how customers buy vehicles in the future, the electric car is now seen as probable, not improbable. And in that way, Elon Musk's uh, original idea for Tesla has come true. What's next? Well, the auto industry is brutally competitive. It is a daily fight, a quarterly fight, a annual fight that has brought down giants before. And so the key to the future is going to be execution. It's going to be learning how to uh, develop multiple vehicles at the same time. It's going to be figuring out how to compete against other rivals who clearly are coming after them because Tesla has a, a a bullseye on its back. And so lots of challenges ahead for the company. But at this point in time, they have at least uh, convinced many in the world that electric cars are possible. So yeah, and and, and I, I actually had a similar question, which uh, I'm going to diverge, but I mean, I had said, you know, what would be for the next decade? But I want to think about that question a little bit in the sense of Elon Musk and this the, the idea that really any great leader is thinking about who's going to be the next great leader of that company, right? You're, you're thinking about who you're going to groom to be your successor. How can I keep the success going? Many examples of, of that in Silicon Valley and, and in larger uh, business world. The question with Tesla is, one, are, is Tesla on even solid ground now? And two, you know, if Elon Musk were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, an electric bus, hopefully, um, what would happen at Tesla? You know, does well, Tesla can exist without Elon Musk now? Now that he's with what he's he's laid the groundwork. Well, as, as we kind of talked about, that one of the continuing problems and challenges for Tesla going back to the beginning was getting cash, having that money. In 2020, they showed uh, the market that they could uh, make a profit and get these vehicles out in a way that really excited. A lot of investors and the stock has just gone crazy in the last uh, in the last few years. Uh, crazy to some, but to others, uh, obvious because they think that's the future. And what it's done 
has allowed Tesla to address one of those, that key problem. It's allowed them to very cheaply, essentially, uh, raise a lot of money. They have a, a war chest of cash that should allow them to weather the natural cyclical ups and downs that you see in the car company. So the question is, do they use that appropriately? Uh, do they, you know, are they able to execute? So are they on solid ground? They're on the best ground they've been uh, since the early days. Uh, the question about who's next, who, who is going to be Elon Musk's Tim Cook? You remember Tim Cook was a key lieutenant for Steve Jobs who helped uh, on the operational side, on the stuff that maybe Steve was less interested in. Elon Musk hasn't found that person. It's been a, a problem at Tesla throughout the years. And at this point, it's not clear who the natural successor would be. The bench uh, there is, is not especially deep. It has people who are very smart and experienced of operating inside of Tesla and managing up to Elon, but it's not clear yet that um, there's somebody there to be the next CEO. And I guess, you know, you even put it really well where you think about Tim Cook with this operational leader, right, that came in and didn't quite have uh, the vision, the product vision, the the innovation, uh, the, the innovation that Steve Jobs really, really that what the company stood for, which is really what Elon Musk is for Tesla. And you wonder if the next leader of Tesla will have sort of that that ability to just want to drive forward anything, drive forward the impossible. Uh, where or is it somebody like more like Cook who is just really thinking about how do I keep this company running and growing? It's it's you know it's an interesting question. Elon has recently said, and he says in the book that he doesn't necessarily want to be CEO of Tesla. That's not his ambition. But it's clear if you read this book that he wants to be in control of Tesla. And the story of, of power play is really a, a story of fighting for control. First, he's fighting to take control. It's, he's fighting to control the vision of the company. He's fighting to control the auto industry. He's fighting to control where the company is going. And that is at the heart of one of the, the biggest questions of, of the future. And now I'm really understanding the power pun in that in that title. Yep, it's a it's a play. Who came it's up with drama. the title? You? <laughs> it's a, I have sources. It's a play on words in the power power play words. Um, well, Tim, this was wonderful. I think we're we're all out of audience questions, and we're also almost right out of time. So thank you so much for just uh, the the great book and uh, for this this great session. Um, we'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. Um, also a reminder, you guys can see the book. You can buy it now. Tim, any more plugs for where you can buy your book? In local bookstores, Amazon, wherever you like to buy books. It's out there. All and right. thanks to the, the Commonwealth Club for having us. It's, it's an honor. Yeah. yeah. So if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming possible, please visit thecommonwealth.org slash online. I'm Joanna Stern. Thank you all for watching. Stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.